a couple things. So we, uh, we, we discussed, who is we? You know, we is always kind of like, like you don't actually know who the we is, but uh, exactly, it's, it's sort of a royal we. Um, we have decided that I'm going to try to keep this particular uh, lecture of similar length to the last one, which means I have no idea. And at the end of that, we will continue the Q&A. There's some really good questions asked uh, during the break or at the end of the last session, and then a few that we didn't get to. And just looking at the schedule, it seems like we might be at a good uh, point to just kind of stop, slow down a little bit, and to let people uh, pepper a few questions and talk about that. Uh, there will also be a Q&A at the end of the last day. And uh, I want to say, too, that uh, the, one of the last sessions that I will do on, let me look at the day here, Thursday is called Cultivating a Culture of Evangelism. And in terms of just the nuts and bolts, practical application of all the things that we've been talking about, uh, that's kind of the most important uh, lesson. Uh, it really is the summary, the so now what, the what do we do, uh, kind of uh, bringing, bringing it all together. Uh, so be thinking now about uh, any questions that you would uh, like to ask at the end of this session. And if they're really good, ask them. And then if they're not good, feel free to text them and know that I'm not checking my phone the entire week. All right, then <clears throat> at the end of the chapter, one simple verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And once more, let's pray. Oh Lord, as we continue to turn our thoughts toward you and the ministry of the gospel in this world, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we recognize, O oh Lord, that this verse encouraging us to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord is anchored in the fact that our Savior has gone before us into heaven, having triumphed over sin, over death, over Satan, and even triumphed over, triumphing over our own hearts. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would continue to encourage and refresh us, and that we would leave here desiring more and more to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, please be seated. <clears throat> so this is the other side of the coin of the previous lesson. Uh, uh, if you think about the Moses to Joshua dynamic, uh, the OPC has a, similar, uh, has a similar narrative. Machen, you might say, was our Moses who... Uh, did not live to see uh, the unfolding of many things into the land. Now, I'm not saying that he died because of uh, disobedience like Moses did. Uh, but Machen did die, of course, very soon after the formation of the OPC within uh, about the space of a year. And then uh, right behind him uh, rose one who became a very prominent figure in the OPC, which is Cornelius Van Til. 
And in a lot of respects, at least in my view, Van Til really carried the apologetic mantle of Machen and stood on his shoulders and furthered his work. Uh, Cornelius Van Til uh, was a, a, a fine uh, Dutch theologian, taught at Westminster, Philadelphia quite a while. There are people here who had him as a professor. Uh, he was a, not only a professor and a reformed apologist. Uh, some things I like about Van Til that are maybe a little bit lesser known. Uh, he was a street preacher and he was a gardener. Did you know that? Uh, Van Til uh, was reputed for going out and doing some pretty, uh, pretty bold things, like going down to New York City with students from the seminary and uh, standing on a corner and street preaching, and then uh, supposedly having uh, students take a shot at it as well. Uh, I was in New York recently and just thought, oh, that's, just, that's just crazy, that's a crazy place, but I could, there's crazy people in the OPC aren't we? (laughs) Um, Yesterday evening, somebody was uh, sharing a story with me as well. One of the ministers here was saying that when he was a student at uh, Westminster, uh, he had a a surgical procedure in a hospital, and while he was there on a Sunday afternoon, Van Til came and visited him, and uh, and that student, uh, pastor here, uh, found out that it was actually Van Til's habit uh, on Sunday afternoons to take his Bible and go to the hospital and uh, just go room to room on floors and say, hi, my name's Cornelius Van Til. I'm a, a Protestant minister, and I'd love to read the Bible to you and pray with you. Now, I'm telling little stories like this. Van Til, the street preacher. Van Til, the walk around the hospital with a Bible, introducing himself to six strangers in hospital rooms to try to uh, talk to them about the things of the Lord. Uh, because my guess is a lot of us know the name Van Til, and associate him with some higher-end books that he's written, higher-end apologetics that he's written, and uh, some high-octane theology. And what I'm really hoping to do is to try to bring a lot of things down, uh, including, in a certain sense, the theologians that we've kind of put up here. You know, guys like Calvin, you know, think about them walking through uh, those little stations where people dying for the plague was laid out. That's the Calvin I want you to leave here thinking about. Or, you know, Machen uh, pleading for the gospel and in his own way laying down his life, even you know, dying on the frozen tundra in the Midwest, encouraging churches to stand for the gospel and asking us the question, you know, what are you going to do in these stirring days? Or Van Til, uh, gardener, that's a nice way to think about him, right? Makes him sound kind of human. Street preacher, that makes him sound kind of crazy. I like that, Right? Uh, going hospital bed by hospital bed, trying to visit people. Well, uh, Van Til uh, is a guy that I've actually grown to appreciate in a lot of ways. And I have to admit, the more I get to know him, the more I'm impressed with aspects of what he has to say. And again, I'll make a little plug. This is a book of his called The God of Hope. Uh, This is a collection of sermons. If you read these, I think one thing that will stand out to you is uh, how about the gospel Van Til really was. He was reformed. He was apologetic, and he was all about proclaiming the gospel, and I think maybe even one of the more controversial things that, uh, that you might find on this note, and we'll take this up at some point more, uh, but Van Til really saw the idea of sharing the gospel as something that every Christian ought to be doing. He had a high view of the church, high view of the office of minister and pastor, and as I'll quote uh, in a few minutes, he, he's fairly unambiguous, even in sermons he preached in churches, when he said to the whole church, this is you. Uh, This is your calling, uh, in a certain sense, to be out there and to be part of the salt and light 
that leavens the world in a good sense. Uh, Van Til said that if, if Luther and Calvin were sober men, how much more should we be today? The times are even more perilous now. Now, he wrote that in 1963, before the Cultural Revolution, right? Uh, before 1972, that monumental year when I was born. <laughs> and the world turned upside down, right? <clears throat> he wrote it before postmodernism and all of its skepticism about everything authoritative. Uh, he said, somebody asked me a question during the Q&A, uh, so what do you feel about the relationships that we can have uh, with churches that are, are less reformed than we are? And I know that's a debatable topic, uh, but at least for what it's worth, Van Til's take on that was kind of interesting. Uh, he had a really high interest, I think, in uh, figures like C.S. Lewis. And uh, he commented on, on Lewis and Arminian preaching in one of his writings. Uh, he says this, and I'm quoting. This will surprise you, by the way. I rejoice in Arminian preaching. <laughs> I didn't say it, I'm just quoting it. He said, I rejoice in Arminian preaching, but it is my business to preach and teach the Reformed faith, and when I do that, I cannot avoid the responsibility of pointing out where Arminianism does not fully represent the scriptural truth. The same with Armenian apologetics. Now he says this, and I, this is great. This is where I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of calling out now some of our, you know, our thoughtful teenagers who are really uh, drinking this stuff in and just wondering, okay, so what am I going to do? Van Til says this. I feel like it's a call. We need a reformed Lewis. We have none. I see none on the horizon. So he doesn't simply say that I rejoice in Arminian preaching. He, he did say that. He went on to say, we need some Reformed C.S. Lewis's, thoughtful, good writers with Reformed theology and Reformed convictions and those that are going to stand against the tide and even uh, say uh, old truths and creative new ways that the world might actually be able to hear and give attention to the claims of the cross. Our task is those who still believe that we are by nature sinners with the burden of God's wrath upon us till Christ bears the penalty due to our sins on our behalf is to unite in a common effort of carrying forth the gospel as proclaimed by the reformers to a world that is lost in sin today. Let us not compromise the gospel of God by our... And I need to turn back two pages here. Hold on for a second. My page got messed up. It's really sad. Sorry about that. I should have been prepared for that a little bit better. <clears throat> Let us not compromise the gospel of God by cooperating with those who proclaim <clears throat> the gospel of man. Let us not be wise in our own conceits. For what we have, we have received by grace. But let us, with holy boldness, proclaim that after the world by wisdom, although the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. Then in the 1968 sermon before the General Assembly, he said this. I think this is really interesting. So I'm making the suggestion that Van Til sees the work of evangelism as the work of the whole church. In front of the General Assembly, which is mostly minister and elders, he says this. If only each of God's people, notice he didn't just say ministers and elders, 
But Van Til said, only if each one of God's people will see himself in the light of the calling that he has, together with all the people of the covenant to become a blessing to all the nations through the promised Messiah, will they be able to face the future with joy and confidence instead of fear? You notice a similar little note there to what Machen was saying? How are we going to face the future? Well, they give a very similar answer. It's with the gospel, and it's with the whole church seeing itself as a part of this unfolding task, as a part of this grand battle that God has already won through the victory of Jesus Christ, uh, as a part of this, and I've been using this drama language. I wrote a book that has that title in it. I like the drama language. That It's kind of like this. Uh, God's unfolding this beautiful, redemptive drama in history. He's saving people for Himself and unto Himself. And the church, the whole church has a part to play. Everyone in the drama has a part. Everyone has uh, some role here and the question is what is it you might be called to be a pastor or a missionary you might not but if you're not called to be one of those that doesn't mean you're not in the play that doesn't mean you have no role everybody has uh, some role to play and the question is what role will it be notice again also the language of uncertainty right how will we face these uncertain days if they could if he could say that in 1963 Things look more certain now than they did prior to the late 60s, right? So how are we going to face the same uh, measures of uncertainty? Well, it's the same answer, right? It only if each and every one of us see that we are called somehow to follow after King Jesus and wherever He stations us to serve there and to serve there with faithfulness, to serve there with joy and serve there not with a sense of, okay, I have to do this, right? But with a real sense of this is a privilege. It's a privilege, not just to be a part of the church. It's a privilege to serve the king and it's a privilege to bear his gospel before the world one way or another. He goes on to ask, who then must bring to a world that is without God and without hope the message of constraining love of Christ for sinful men? Who must take the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved? This is fantastic. It is our little church. He must have been talking about the OPC. It is our little church that was brought into existence for this very purpose. It is, thank God, not we alone. There are throughout the world others who have not bowed the knee to Baal, but I speak now of our task as a church living in this time and in this place. I, I'm really persuaded, and I, I, to me this is a big deal. Uh, people ask me all the time, well, why are you in the OPC? I, other places have tried to get me to go elsewhere. So, you know, you just seem like you belong somewhere else. I belong right here. Like I'm, I'm planted right here. They, they might kick me out one day, but I'm planning on staying. I'll, I'll go down with a good fight. Because in my view, the OPC has always stood for wanting to be faithfully reformed and not compromising that. And I, I like that. I'm a postmodern guy. I'm impressed by people that stand for something. I'm, I'm a kid who grew up hating authority only because I really needed it. And to now have voices worth respecting and counsel worth heeding, uh, for me that's fantastic. Uh, to not feel like the church is something that was microwaved 15 minutes ago, right? 
but rather is part of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, that rather than inventing the church, we're inheriting the church. Rather than inventing truth, uh, we are inheriting truth. That's beautiful to me. Those are beautiful things. I, I love the OPC for that. But I, I, I think I love it just as much when I go back and I read the early guys like Van Til and Machen and others in the sense that while they wanted to be reformed in, that, uh, in a robust, manly way, they also were all about the gospel. In fact, they believed that our little church was called into existence primarily for the sake of being a faithful gospel witness at a time when faithful gospel witness was being compromised. So uh, what does it mean to be an Orthodox Presbyterian? In my view, it's to be Reformed and it's to be evangelistic. And if you drop off the second part, there's an identity crisis. So there's the little gauntlet rolled down the aisle. The OPC, according to Machen and Van Til, came into existence to go out and proclaim the gospel in uncompromised, unwavering, persevering, joyful ways. Uh, That's what uh, God brought this little church into existence for. Why are we still here? Denominations do come and go. Right? Why has God kept us around? I I think it's for this very purpose. Ironically, uh, as we watch the world do all of the dumb stuff that it's doing and the church following pretty hard on the world's heels. I I go to a pastor's meeting uh, once a month. A bunch of really great guys. I love these guys. Disagree all day long with these guys. Uh, I am, okay, so this is hard for me to admit, but in this room of mostly church planning pastors, there are like 25 guys, I'm the second oldest guy in the room at 46. Why are you shaking your head and smiling? Just kidding. Okay, so I'm the second oldest guy in the room. I'm one of five that's been to seminary. 25 pastors. All these guys, for the most part, are planning churches, and all of them have these names that are like not only like anti-the world or pro-gospel, they actually have these like these anti-church subtitles, village church, the church for people that don't like church. What does that even mean? Right? One guy, this is not your grandma's church, you've seen that one before. That, that's actually an old one. It's coming back again. I just want to know, what did my grandmother do wrong? <laughs> my grandmother was really nice. She baked the best pumpkin pie in the world. She switched me. You know, when I was a kid, you didn't just get spanked. You went out, you pulled a switch off of a thing, and you got whipped with one of those. If you, you had to go pick it out by yourself. <laughs> if you came back with one that was too thin, she'd make you go back and get another one. If it was too thick, she'd make you go back another time. By the time you got back, your hands were... Shaken. Why, why did my grandmother get kicked out of church? Why is the church trying to invent itself? Now, I say this uh, because to me, again, one of the beauties of the OPC and being reformed is we are actually inheriting rather than inventing. To invent the faith is the heart and soul of postmodernism. History is meaningless. Authority has nothing to say. Uh, generational narcissism I will do my own thing now. The world begins with me and about 15 minutes ago, apparently. Okay? Uh, that, that is all bad, all, all upside down and wrong. And, and the church is going after that. And by contrast, there's the OPC. 
This is why I say I feel like we've got the best tools, the best equipment to actually engage postmodern skepticism, uh, confused millennialism, whatever that is. I mean by that like the age group, right? Uh, uh, to really engage the beauties of the Reformed faith, build Reformed families, Reformed churches. But we have to go back to our original charter, which is to bring the gospel to lost men and women. It's not enough to just be Reformed. In fact, I'm going to say it's like Reformed with the last few letters broken and kind of hanging down to not be zealous for the work of the gospel. And I think you find this uh, in men like Van Til and Machen. Uh, Van Til goes on to say, True humility requires, requires us to be bold on behalf of our Lord. And this is hard. And if we will not be bold for Christ, then Christ will bring us low and humiliate us. True boldness for Christ and true humility in Christ go hand in hand. That seems a little bit strange, but hear it again. It's actually pretty great stuff. True boldness for Christ and true humility in Christ go hand in hand. Maybe sometimes what hinders us from going out and being really bold for the gospel is frankly we're just too proud. Where does humility come from? Staring at the cross, right? But where does boldness come from? I actually think it flows uh, from humility, and that seems to be what Mantle is saying as well. Mantle believed uh, that God doesn't just make men savable, He actually saves them, and whether the harvest is great or small, it is God who works through us. And so he says, He will use us, even us, though we not be such mighty men as Augustine, right, not Augustine, Augustine or Calvin to defeat Satan. He will use us. Little old us. Christ is our victor, and our victory is in Him. Six months uh, before his death, he began a commentary on Joshua, noting that the whole purpose of the Reformation was like that of Joshua's day. Uh, the people had failed to have no other gods. They had made secretistic alliances with the world. They needed to be called home. They needed to be reminded of their commission. How much more today? Right? We, just, we don't need to invent something, friends. We just need to be reminded of who we are. And, and be a faithful version of ourself. I want to say just a, a few more things here uh, about uh, Van Til. Uh, there's, a, there's an article that has been, that has been written. This, this will probably stem a little, create a little conversation. Uh, this, there's an article that's been written by a fellow named Scott Oliphant at, at Westminster, Philadelphia. The article title is Van Til the Evangelist. And, and he notes... Now, I'm going to go theological here for a minute, but just hold on with me. I'm going someplace that I, I think will make sense to you. Uh, so he notes that there's this theologian named Kuiper uh, who liked to talk a lot about the antithesis. And we use that language and we associate it with Van Til as well. And so the antithesis is uh, that there's this great divide between the Christian mind and the non-Christian mind. And that, that divide is, is so great that it's impossible for the non-Christian to understand the things of God, until God opens his heart. And to a very certain extent, that's true, right? Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the natural man does not comprehend the things of God, nor does he discern them, because they are spiritually discerned. Without the spirit of the natural man 
can't understand what we're talking about right now. Like we're speaking a foreign language. We're speaking Dutch. Yay. Begrijpt u wat ik bedoelt? Never mind, we'll stop that. All right, that was too much. Uh, so, so Van Til notes that when uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, a pretty prominent uh, Dutch theologian, uh, wrote a book, uh, a, a large book, this big encyclopedia, uh, it's called, uh, on, the, on the subject of apologetics, in this gigantic book where he deals with all these other things, uh, he, he has eight whole pages. And, and Van Til notes a little bit of criticism uh, that the reason why, which Kuiper actually admits in these eight tiny little pages on apologetics, that when it comes to trying to actually persuade non-Christians about the things of the faith, there's really no point because they're non-Christians. Van Til saw a little problem with that. Okay? You got eight tiny little pages, and all you basically do apologetically there is basically say uh, there's no real place for apologetics. Rather, what we ought to do is teach apologetics in our Christian schools to our Christian kids. So to that, uh, tons and tons of pages are devoted, but it's actually regards trying to persuade non-Christians regarding the things of the faith. Uh, very little space was devoted. And, and Van Til, you might note, with all his works in his life, did the exact opposite. He wrote an awful lot about defending the faith, but he not only wrote an awful lot about defending the faith, he actually went out on street corners and in hospitals and defended the faith. Now, what I want to do with this is say something that I think is maybe a little bit provocative. I'm okay to, you know, I'm willing to be doing that. We're friends by now, right? Okay, I think at times we have functioned similar to what Van Til is critiquing, which is an irony. But the way that we can function that way is by building up walls around ourselves and our communities in such a way uh, that we have hardly any, if ever, interaction with non-Christians. So when I go and give these speeches up in Canada and talk with some of our, our good folks up there, uh, they will admit pretty quickly, yeah, that's right. You know, we came over, and I'm just talking about like the Dutch narrative, and I'm not really being critical of it. It's a good uh, thing to consider. You know, they came over and immigrated. They spoke one language over there. They came here. Uh, they settled in farmlands. The first thing they did was build a church. They went to work. They hired people in their church. They go to church together, they have fantastically strong families, and there is very little interaction between that world and the non-Christian world around them. And for a number of decades, that worked, because that was the world. The problem is, kind of obvious, right? On the one hand, uh, there has to be some place where the church engages non-Christians, the nations around us. The bigger problem, and this is one I, I just, I mean, I'm very thankful to be a part of these conversations now with our brothers up there, because I'm learning a ton from them, and uh, they're not learning much from me, but maybe from us as a whole. But the thing that's, that you have to admit, right, like I said yesterday the day before, uh, the nations are all around us now. I, I almost want to say this forcefully. Uh, the, the tiny little uh, Midwestern town does not exist anymore. The idea that you can build a Christian community and kind of wall it off from the world is a myth. And the reason why it's a myth is those little flat screen TVs every one of you has in your pocket and there's one in your room. You, th that world is gone. 
even in the frozen tundra of Winnipeg, Canada, parents and pastors are telling me, you know what, uh, our, our people, our kids, uh, they are just exposed to so many different ideas coming from all over the world. Uh, so what you might have been able to live out as an antithesis, the church over here and the world over there, and just kind of wall this one around and keep it safe from the world and its influences, that's really gone. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to speak a, a, fairly, a fairly stern word here, both to pastors and parents, which is to say uh, uh, there may have been a mentality at times that said the safe thing to do is sort of build these walls that will protect us from the world. And I'm suggesting that that's actually uh, a very dangerous mindset to have. And that a healthier one, and you can push back on me, this is going to be Q&A here, and you know, I'm, I'm bracing myself for it, Right? is to say that rather than thinking that you can live this sort of Christian bubble approach to the antithesis, uh, rather what we need to do is prepare our kids, our churches, to engage. Teach them to engage. Educate them in the ideas that are out there that they're, they're going to hear it. If they don't hear it from you, it's kind of like learning about sex, right? If they don't hear it from you, they're going to hear about somebody. You can pretend we're not going to have this conversation. Somebody's going to have that conversation. Only question is who's going to have it first. Uh, the world's ideas are all around us. They're three clicks away anytime anyone is on the Internet or caught up in Instagram or Twitter or whatever else is going on. And I, I think we have to take the high ground and this is exactly consistent with the things that we've been talking about, educate, inform, and prepare our kids to engage. One of the things I'm actually quite encouraged about, and I was just giving a signal I need to wind down here for time's sake uh, and start the Q&A. One of the things I'm actually really encouraged about is uh, when I think about people that are like my age, I'm sorry, half my age and younger, so that's like this row right here, like you guys. So I look at you guys, right? Thank you, I see you. I love you too. Right? Uh, is they are much more bold in a lot of ways than I am. And the reason for that is, if you are a millennial or even younger, you are taught by the world loudly to be yourself. The worst thing anyone could be is inauthentic and ashamed of who they are. So if you are a lesbian with tattoos, you are taught by the world to be a loud version of yourself. Be really out there with it, right? Uh, no matter what you are, uh, I, I think the millennial mindset and younger, was a lot of things there I'm concerned about, but one thing I'm actually really upbeat about is there's a boldness there that is not restrained by the social P's and Q's that folks my age and older were conditioned by. It's on. Whatever you are, it's on, and it's out there. I took my family and our new intern to the beach the other day, uh, and there were two grown ladies making out theatrically right in front of the whole world on the beach. And it, it looked very clear. They were really just trying to make a point. That's how brazen the world is. That's how un bashful the world is and yet the church still wonders if it can live in a bubble and and kind of wall itself off and somehow that'll keep us and our kids safe i i think actually what we have to do is engage 
and, and maybe this is pushing the envelope for some of us, that's okay. You, you're going to have to work it out between yourself and God. But uh, the best defense is what? Good offense. Right? And, and the crazy thing is, not only do we, in that sense, protect ourselves and our families and our churches, I think we actually take ground from the enemy. Right? I had a gentleman tell me here a little while ago talking about failure. He says, you know, I wonder how many people witnessed to me before I actually listened. How many people might have worked on me before it actually, you know, in God's timing and providence worked? Right? So I'm going to try to land the plane here and say that I'd like for us to kind of interact with some of these ideas uh, a little bit. But let me, let me end here with a quote from Van Til, who again gave his life not only to preparing us with great literature to defend the faith within the circle of the church, but also to go out and engage those who are outside the church. And he practiced what he preached. Uh, he said this, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's will to give you the kingdom. He will conquer, and He will conquer through you as you proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Let us then be up and doing. Let us snatch as many brands from the burning fire as we can. That was said by Cornelius Van Til, Calvinist, Reformed apologist, street preacher, gardener. One last little cute story, i got to add this. So I was talking with someone uh, recently, a pastor also had studied uh, under Van Til, uh, who in his later days, Van Til liked to walk a lot. And uh, so this young man went to uh, talk with him. How would they characterize you? He keeps a good lawn. He keeps to himself. He keeps a great lawn. Would they say something like that? I love that. I think that's fantastic. As I get to know this guy better, I just love him all the more. I, I can just totally imagine him being the kind of guy that at some point or another, he's going to know all his neighbors' names. He's going to try to talk to them about Christ if he can. You know, maybe not all of us are going to do that. But at the end of the day, beloved, uh, the world around us, whatever people are doing, they want to be known for it. It's okay to be out there these days. It's actually like what you're supposed to do in the world's way of looking at identity. Uh, what are we known for? What are you known for? Your friends, your coworkers, people on the sports team with you. Uh, what are we known for? What better to be known for than by the gospel itself? All right, I'll stop there and uh, invite Q&A for a while, beginning with the, uh, the young lady in the box. Uh, what is your name? Annalise. I just want to call you something other than the young lady in the box. That sounds sort of caged and not really, not really kind. Where is that blue microphone? Or Al, how are we going to do this? Didn't mean to make you get up. I know that looked like a lot of work. <laughs> You're a gracious guy, Al. Annalise. Right, so the question is, how to evangelize your family members 
And that's a tough one. So I, in my own family, there are Christians and there are non-Christians. Um, I have kind of a fun way of saying it. So I, I probably come from the most loud and opinionated family on the planet. Uh, we, we, we would be like fantastic Italians or something. You know, we're loud, we fight vigorously, we forgive and we eat. And nobody remembers anything the next day. Um, I'm the most unopinionated of my four siblings, and I became a preacher. I, I, I thought I'd give you a couple seconds to get there. So, I'm going to over-answer your question by saying like this. Like this. I, I think that depending on the amount of time that you have to get to know someone, uh, you can have varying approaches. So, you know, you, you can have a, hi, I'm in line at a grocery store, and, you know, in my mind, I have like a two-minute version of, of things related to the gospel that I can actually try to accomplish in that space. You know, you have your airport line, maybe you have your friends uh, in school or soccer, but then, you know, your family, I think, is a, is a context where they need to see what you believe in you. That's number one. Secondly, uh, when you speak, I think you need to be gracious. And I'm speaking as a, a studied failure here who has probably way too many times picked the wrong battles and dug in uh, with a fairly assertive personality and in hindsight uh, use, a, use a sledgehammer at times when a screwdriver might have done the job. So I, I think that a long, patient practice what you preach kind of approach is really huge and a, a lot of a lot of love and kindness and grace uh, you have to remember too you know we, we're not going to save people by any of our tactics or strategies only God can save people but if you're talking about trying to witness people in your family who see how you are you know behind closed doors what you're like before coffee you've got a lot to prove <laughs> right and I think love, you know, loving people. I don't want to sound sappy, but I mean, just really going out of your way to love people and show them kindness and patience and grace uh, is, is so important, especially for people that grow up with you and, and see all of your life. Because if they hear you saying gospel truth and then see you practicing gospel opposites, you're just going to reinforce a manner of, conclu- of confusion and dissonance. But if they see you practicing what you preach, I think that will at least go some way. And I'll say the irony too, in, in my family, uh, it's interesting. I feel like a genie in a lamp. Uh, they, only wanna, they only want their brother to be a preacher when everything hits the fan. The rest of the time, they want me to keep my opinions to myself. And then when things really go south, I get the first call and they want help. So I mean, it's a strange, you know, little dynamic. Maybe it's different in other families. Uh, but uh, I'll stop with that unless you want to follow up with it. Yep, thank you. Okay? Thank you. Next? So this gentleman first, and then we'll bring the mic to the young lady here in the middle. Thank you. 
could you give me an example of the first I can? Yeah. Yep. Not to complicate it at all, because <clears throat> I've never I've never been to Prague, and I was really terrified by New York City. Um, I'm a small town country boy that likes people in manageable quantities. That was cruel. All right, so. I'm not going to try to answer the specifics of those questions, but I will say as a category, um, what I do find myself often saying to people when they throw up things like that uh, is to sort of, sort of like navigate actually around the questions and say, I think you're just using those questions as an excuse. So for instance, if somebody says, you know, they've, they've got like a natural science objection to create, you know, Christianity, and that's why they don't believe that to me is kind of easy to respond to. Okay, so what have you read from a Christian that helps answer that? Well, nothing. Well, then you don't really care about the question, right? Because in general, people do what they want to do. And if they really, if that's really the thing that's holding them back, uh, they, they might actually spend a little bit of time trying to answer the question. So you can answer the question. But actually, I like the way Van Til, uh does some of this. I love, to answer your second question, I love that little thing, why I believe in God that little conversation that he creates. Because I think at the end of the day, what we do as non-Christians is we use our questions as shields from the realities we don't want to engage. And that's the point that he makes. Uh, I think at the end of the day, our questions really even aren't intellectual. They're ultimately moral, and they simply reflect our unwillingness uh, to love and submit to our Creator. And we're just using these, these questions to avoid the real question of our running away from God. So I, I actually like to cut to the chase. I, I used to, in, my, in earlier days, and I'm not sure I'm doing it any better now, but it's just the truth, that I used to spend a lot more time, like I'd take the bait and run down, okay, so let's debate you know, evolution or whatever for a long time. And it just seemed to me that those conversations always ended in the same sort of frustrating place. And that I would get better traction if I say, you know, I hear what you're saying about that question, but I, but I wonder if that's really the thing that's holding you back. If at the end of the day, maybe you just don't want to acknowledge that there is a God. Maybe even in your heart you believe that there is a God and you just don't want to have to obey Him. Because if, if you actually acknowledge that He's there, it would be a game changer. So what, what is the real question, the real issue? And then I like the way you know, Van Til uh, kind of aids us here is to say, and, and is it actually working to try to live life without God? So this is a good opportunity uh, to say something that will probably discomfort a few of you even more. Um, and that is, I, I've actually gone back to listening to a lot of the secular music that I listened to back in my pre-Christian days. Okay, I have to say something else or you're really uncomfortable. There's actually a reason why. It's been quite helpful for me at a couple of levels. So when I became a Christian, I threw literally threw away like everything, which some of it was worth money now. Like if I'd caught, kept and sold some of that stuff on eBay... I had bootlegs of the Grateful Dead, first edition things, blah, blah, blah. Um, Looking back at it, though, those musicians, those were my pastors. 
So Bob Marley and the Grateful Dead, those were my kind of laid back, those are my comforters. Metallica, I've spent a lot of time in, in mosh pits. I've broken two arms, my nose. I've bodily injured people in, you know, slam dancing mosh pits. I have a violent past, I really do. And looking back or listening to the musicians from back in those days actually tells me a lot about myself and why I was so angry. It's because not only was I angry, but I was reinforcing my anger with musicians that were just as angry. Think about Kurt Cobain, right? Nirvana. You know, just there's, there's an embodiment of a worldview and the anger of postmodern frustration that comes through in music and, and says it very poetically and loudly. And, and music, those really are people's pastors. So I, for me, as a pastor, as a dad, as a Christian, uh, working through a lot of these things, it's actually been helpful for me to go back and listen to the lyrics of the people that were really influencing me back in those dark days. And, and now I have a whole lecture, I haven't done it here, where I quote from a lot of uh, pretty recent music to show how like, people are singing out their pain. People are singing out how lost they are. People are singing out, like, it's almost like they're saying, I, I realize I'm lost, but expletive, I don't know what to do. And so I'm going to drink, I'm going to go to sex, I'm going to go to violence, I'm going to kill myself. You have all of those things. That's what I'm trying to say. That, when a person starts to talk about evolution or something like that, that's probably a smokescreen for something really bigger that's underneath the surface. And to get to that is probably to get closer to the heart, in, in my view. This young lady here. Oh, I have children. Let's go. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> she, could she at least go through the front of the line at lunch or something, like a bonus prize? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we will have another Q&A, so we'll come back to that. Yep. All right, thank you. You're dismissed. Go to lunch. <laughs>